So if you'll take your Bibles with me and open to Ephesians chapter 1, which you have one of the Red Bibles. Ephesians 1 is on page 976, page 976. We just began last week a series that will take us 16 messages through the book of Ephesians. Last week we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. If you weren't here then, you can uh, go back and listen to that or read it. But this morning, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, the rest of chapter 1. And I want to ask you one more time, if you're able, if you would stand, so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet." And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, would you now, as this text says, open the eyes of our hearts to see all that you have for us in Christ Jesus. Enable me to preach your word in power. I will happily boast of my weakness in doing that so that your power might be known. Would you do that now in Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated. If you read through the Bible, there is so much that is shocking to us on amazing levels. I mean, just start in the beginning, you start reading through the mere fact that, that God allows the Israelites to pass through the Red Sea with, with walls of water and sea creatures, no doubt, swimming in those walls of water as they pass through on dry land is an amazing and shocking reality. The fact that Elijah takes the widow's son who has died and then raises him from the dead is an amazing and miraculous and shocking reality. When you get to the pages of the New Testament, the fact that on the day of Pentecost, individuals can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and individuals around them who, who speak different languages are enabled to hear their preaching in the language that they speak, each and every one of them, so that he hears in his own language is shocking and amazing and miraculous. But what is even more shocking, and I do not say that phrase just for some kind of flair, it is legitimately more shocking than any of those realities, is the fact that the God who created the universe and everything in it is desiring, and it is so obvious in the text, He wants us to know Him, 
to know how he loves us, to know how he has blessed us, to know how he intends to bless us. When we as God's children read the Bible, that becomes so utterly clear to us. And I think there's a place in Ephesians 1 that perhaps just abounds all the more in that category. It's hard for me to think of a chapter in the Bible that expresses God's heart for us to know what He thinks of us and what He has planned for us and what He has purposed for us more than this chapter. Just think of what we saw last week. In Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, Paul starts out that chapter saying, look, I'm I'm praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as he unfolds the reasons for which he is praising God, it becomes clear that he is outlining for us all the blessings that you and I have. And they are blessings that span from eternity past into the eternity future. In eternity past, before the world was founded, before it was created, before you and I or anything ever existed, Paul says that God chose us in Him uh, to be holy and blameless. He predestined us to be adopted as His sons. So we have been chosen in eternity past and predestined in eternity past to be His holy, blameless children. Not only that, in the present, in redemptive history, in this age, God then did everything necessary because we weren't holy and blameless. We weren't His children. He did everything necessary to make us holy and blameless and to make us His children. And what that involved is sending His Son into the world to live the perfect life we did not live so that we might have His holiness and His blamelessness and His righteousness credited to us. He sent His Son into the world so that He might die and pay for our sins, shedding His blood so that we might have forgiveness of sins. He raised Him from the dead to reign at His right hand because one day when Jesus Christ returns, he is going to make this earth that is in bondage to corruption and has been ever since Genesis 3, which is why we have thorns and thistles and drought, famine, and the like. One day he's going to come back and heaven and earth are going to become one and there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which everything is perfect and we will reign with him and he has opened our eyes to the mystery of his plan to do that, to unite all things in heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. And then, Paul says, he sealed us with his Holy Spirit. Something he does in the Bible, we see it in Ezekiel 9, we see it in Revelation 7, something he does in the Bible in order to say, that one is mine. And nothing, no matter what comes, will keep me from claiming that one as my own, so that through this entire age he has hold of us. And one day, no matter what comes, God will take us to himself to be with him for all of eternity. Paul lays out those blessings from eternity past to eternity future, and he says, I want you to know all of these that are yours in Christ Jesus. And yet amazingly, he doesn't stop there. The Spirit, we learn as we look at verses 15 through 23, the Spirit not only moved Paul to write Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, which he does, laying out for us all those spiritual blessings, but he also, we learn when we start reading in verse 15, moved Paul to begin praying. And specifically, moved Paul to begin praying that the Ephesian believers would know and take to heart all of these glorious realities that he has unfolded to them. 
You see, it's, it's almost, I think, like we read in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, we read that, that we have been adopted as God's sons, but it's not simply that. It's not a just write that down and note that, that legally we've been adopted. But in the book of Galatians, Paul reminds us, he also sent his spirit into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, it's not just God says to us, I want you to know you've legally been adopted as my sons. He said, I want you to feel it. I want you to know in your soul that you are my sons so that when you cry out you cry out to your father who has made you his own God wants us to know these realities but to know them in the depth of our being and what Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 15 through 23 is everything he's talked about he says to the Ephesians I now bow and I pray for you that those realities would take root in your heart but it doesn't stop there The Spirit not only moved Paul to pray that way, he moved Paul to write down the content of his prayer. So that we this morning, when we read Ephesians 1, 15-23, we see what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Now, why is that important? I think because God wants to send a clear message to us. What Paul prayed for the Ephesians did reflect God's heart for the Ephesians. But what Paul prayed for the Ephesians did not merely reflect God's heart for them. It reflected God's heart for us. So he moved Paul to write down his prayer so that God might say, what Paul prays for the Ephesians is what I want to be true in your life as well. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to walk through this text and see these glorious realities that our God wants us to know. Now, let me show you how this text is structured, how it works. Because I think once we walk through the logic of it, you're going to say, the outline of this sermon is just obvious how you should do it. And, uh, and hopefully you will say that, and hopefully you'll think, and the outline you actually came up with is what you obviously should have. So, so, so let's look at the text a bit. In verses 15 and 16, we'll start there. Paul says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul says, from the time, it says because, I think you could translate that sense as well. Paul says, look, since I heard of your faith, from the time I heard of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, because remember that text that J.B. read early in the sermon? The Ephesians, many of them, were into all kinds of paganism, even practicing magic and and all kinds of demonic practices. And when they were converted, they took their books of magic and they burned them in the fire. And Paul says, from the time I heard of this, from the time that I heard of, of more of you coming to faith in Christ, from that time I heard of your faith, I heard of your love, I began praying for you. And when I began praying for you, I regularly was thanking God. Now why? They're the ones that believed. They're the ones that burned their magic books. They're the ones that burned their expensive magic books, right? They could have sold on the market or something. I don't know what they could have done with them. Probably profited. They set them on fire. Why doesn't Paul say then, I heard of your faith, I heard of your love, I thank you for what you're doing? Because that wouldn't make sense in light of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Paul knows The reason all this happened in your life is because God's grace has been poured out into you. And because I heard of your faith and your love, I've not stopped thanking God for what he's done in you. But it's not as if when he prays for them, he simply thanks God. He also 
prays. He asks God, and specifically, he asks God to do two things. And those two things that Paul asks God to do in his prayer as he regularly prays for them, we see with the word that. The first one, the first part of his prayer is in verse 17. So look at the very end of verse 16. Remembering you in my prayers, that, this is prayer request number one. Prayer request number two is going to build on it. Prayer request number one, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Paul says, here's, here's what I've been praying for you. I've thanked God, but I've also prayed. And the first prayer request I have is that God would pour out his spirit. His spirit, some of, if you have a really old uh, translation of the ESV, it might read, a spirit of wisdom. If you have a newer copy, it's going to say the spirit of wisdom in verse 17. I think the newer translation of that is right. They talking about the Holy Spirit. Paul prays that God would pour out the Holy Spirit on these Ephesian believers so that they would have wisdom and understanding. He says specifically wisdom, spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, when Paul says revelation, I think he probably means what we mean when we say illumination. He doesn't mean that the Spirit would show you something that he's never shown before. What he's saying is, I pray that he would give you wisdom and illumination, the ability to see what is there. Illumination, the way to think of it, illumination is to think of illumining a room, turning on the lights. If you walked into a dark room that was full of all kinds of treasure, but you couldn't see any of it, And you walked into that room full of all this treasure, and it's dark, and you can't see any of it. And then all of a sudden, somebody flipped on the light. And when they flipped on the light, you are in awe. You're overwhelmed. Oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Well, by flipping on the light, they didn't make that room any different. They didn't make the treasure appear. It wasn't there before. It is there now. No, no, no. They simply allowed you to see all the treasures that were already there. That's what Paul's praying He says, I'm praying that God would pour out His Spirit on you, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of revelation, the Spirit of illumination, so that the Spirit would give you, that would open the eyes of your heart. Now, that's weird, right? The eyes of your heart. He means, I don't want you merely to see this with your eyes. I want you to take it in in your inner being, in the depths of your soul. I want you in the depths of of your soul to have eyes opened to the glory of what God wants you to know. Okay, so that's his first request. Pour out the Spirit so that they might have wisdom, so that they might have revelation, they might know, they might see in the depths of their soul. What? Prayer request number two. It also begins with the word that. We'll start in verse 18, the beginning of 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. Now, the second prayer request that Paul asks, pour out the Spirit, that they may know. Now, he has three requests. And each of those three requests begins with the word what. This is real easy for us to follow. Those three requests begin with the word what. Verse 18, that you may know, number one, what is the hope to which he has called you. Number two, what are the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints? And number three, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
In other words, when Paul prayed for the Ephesian elders, God, pour out your spirit, open the eyes of their hearts, give them wisdom, give them understanding, because I want them to know three things. Those three things we're going to walk through in the sermon today. Because, again, as I've argued, not only did Paul, inspired by the Spirit, pray that the Ephesians would know this, but the Spirit moved Paul to write this prayer down because he wants us to know it as well. 2,000 years later, we're reflecting back on this so that we might know it as well. What are these three things? Number one, the eternal hope that awaits us. The eternal hope that awaits us. Your heavenly Father wants you to know the eternal hope that awaits you. Verse 18, this is Paul's first request, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, when Paul says called you there, he doesn't mean something that happened to some believers. We talk like this sometimes. We talk like this, like some believers are called, right? So, so Lee Tankersley was called to pastoral ministry. Some of you chose to do other tasks, but Lee was called to that. But actually, I don't think that's the best way to talk. When you read the Bible, specifically in Paul's letters, without exception, when he speaks of individuals being called, he's speaking of individuals being saved. That's what he means. When he talks about you being called, he talks about you being called to belong to Christ, not to do some special task like preaching or the like, right? So think about Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't mean there's a special group of Christians who have this special calling, and for them, everything works together for their good. For the rest of us, okay. Or think about when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Consider your calling, brothers, he says. Not many of you are wise, not many of you are noble, not many of you are rich, powerful, whatever. He doesn't mean to the Corinthians, think back, the few of you who are called. No, no, no. He says, when he says consider your calling, he means consider when you were saved, how God brought you to himself. God did not save you because you're wise, noble, impressive, etc., etc., etc. So when Paul says here, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you, he's saying, I want you to know when God saved you, to what end did he save you? What is your hope? And when Paul uses hope, he means that aspect of salvation that still awaits us. You see, there are all kinds of blessings we already have now. Already we have been adopted as God's sons. Already we have been declared righteous in Christ. Already we have been forgiven of our sins. But there's still more of our salvation, more of the blessings that we have in Christ that awaits us. That's what Paul is longing for. That's that's why in Romans 8, for example, verses 24 and 25, when he speaks of hope there, he says, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul's saying, here, I want you to know the hope. You don't see it yet. You're waiting for it. But I want you to know what awaits you. In other words, this is Paul's request. And this is what your father wants for us as well. Our father wants us to grasp fully and understand in our hearts the glorious hope that awaits us in eternity. He wants you and me to be overwhelmed 
at the reality that one day our Father will send His Son to come get all of those who are sealed by His Spirit so that we might be with Him forever. He wants us to be in awe of the glorious reality that when Jesus Christ returns and there's a new heavens and a new earth, He will bring us to Himself and enable us to reign with Him forever. He wants us to be overcome in a good way by the glorious blessings of Christ's presence that will be ours forever. Brothers and sisters, one day in eternity, it will have been billions of years since you and I last knew what it was like to sin or to suffer death or to mourn. Paul says, I want you to know by the power of the Spirit the glorious reality of the eternal hope that awaits you. Which raises a question. Why? Why? Why would Paul pray for that? I don't see it. It's future. Why wouldn't Paul pray saying, I want you to know something that you can touch. I want you to know something that's in front of you right now that you can see. Why does Paul want you and me to be so gripped by something we do not see, something we do not yet have, something that awaits us, an eternal hope in the future? I think this is the answer. Because if you rightly grasp the eternal hope that awaits us, it will radically affect how you live now. If you grasp the eternal hope that awaits us, it will radically affect how you live now. Just think about our lives. This morning, Spencer began our class about giving. Just take giving. Why in the world do Christians take a load of their money and give away to the work of Christ? I mean, if there's no life to come, if there's no eternal hope, that is just downright foolish. I mean, I drove a 96 Camry for like 27 years. I could have done better. Actually, I love that car. (laughs) But just think about all the decisions you made. But the reason you and I give is because we believe we can store up eternal treasure. Why do you serve? Why do you serve in ways that nobody praises? I mean, every once in a while we do this at church, don't we? We bring up somebody, maybe the deacons or somebody, we pray for them. We bring up pastors, we pray for them. We bring up the interns this morning. We pray for them. There are all kinds of service going on in the church. We don't bring them up. We don't say, the nursery workers on April 27th, we're going to bring up all of them and pray for them. Most of the time, they're doing that in secret. Nobody's seeing them. Nobody's praising them. Nobody's thanking them. Why in the world are they willing to serve in such a way that they're getting no praise now? Because they believe. Their father who sees them now in secret, oh, he's going to reward them openly there. Why is it that we're willing to suffer? I mean, think about it. Individuals actually suffer and even die for the cause of Christ. That just makes no sense if this life is all there is. I mean, doesn't it make sense when somebody finally has the machete to your throat that you go, you called my bluff. I'll, I'll renounce him. I said a lot about Jesus. I'll quit. Well, no. The reason believers are willing to die for the cause of Christ is because they believe that the suffering of this age is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. 
right? The eternal hope. And so when Paul prays for these Ephesians, and what our Heavenly Father wants us to know as well, is he prays, I want you to know what is the hope to which you've been called. I want you to grasp that in your heart so deeply and radically that it affects how you live. Number two, the second what. We need to see the treasure we are to our Father. We need to see the treasure that we are, that you and I are, to our Father. Again, continue verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know, number one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, this is another one of those texts that could function one of two ways, and they're both true. We saw this last week. Verse 18 could mean that Paul is praying that the Ephesians would know the, the riches of the inheritance that God has for us. That is, Paul's praying, saying, listen, you're going to be heirs with Christ. God made all things for him, and you're united with him, and you're going to be an heir of a new heavens, a new earth to reign with Christ. And I want you to know the riches of that. That could be what he's saying. I don't think that's what he is saying. I think he's saying, and this is option B, that's true. And it may be what he's saying. Option B is that Paul is saying, I want you to know the riches that you are as God's inheritance. Really, that's the way the ESV translates it. What are the riches of His that is God's glorious inheritance in the saints? You see, the Bible regularly speaks of God's people as His heritage, as His inheritance. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, 6, when God says to Israel, I chose you, he says specifically, I chose you to be my treasured possession. And that's what our Father says to us. I have chosen you to be my treasured possession. So when Paul prays that the Ephesians, and then writes it down so that we might know this as well, what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, what he's saying is, I want you to see how richly God treasures you as his inheritance. He wants us to know how cherished and how valued we are to God as his people. Now again, let's just ask, why? Why would you pray that? Why is that helpful? In fact, some may say, we don't really need to know that. That's, this is like Church camp, junior high kids, right? Convince them to know, they need to know how God treasures them and loves them. But when you mature, you move on from that, right? No. In fact, brothers and sisters, if you set out in the Christian life and you try to walk in obedience every day, motivating yourself by heaping condemnation on yourself, you start every day going, I'm condemned and we'll see if I can do better today and maybe I'll work out of it. I'm just going to tell you that will not result in persevering obedience. It won't do it. And you know it because some of you have tried it. Some of you are trying it. Some of you started out your day today and the first thought on your mind is you are condemned and you've been trying to work out of it. Maybe if I can, I can avoid this sin long enough, if I can do these good things long enough, then I'll feel accepted by God. And if you live your life that way, you're going to, one, either give up on your pursuit of righteousness eventually because it's just not working, or you'll begin to hate God. But... Let's think about the logic of the Bible. How does the Bible equip us to persevering obedience? 
Well, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, so that's key. You and I have to love Christ. And if we love him, we're going to keep his commandments. But how do we love him? Let's think of what also the Bible teaches us. We love him because he first loved us. Now let's put it all together. When you and I grasp God's love for us, it results in our hearts being drawn out to love Him. And if we love Him, that will be manifested in you and me keeping His commandments. We see this all over the place in the Bible. You can see it, for example, in the life of the Apostle Paul. You want to talk about someone who is obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, even when it cost him everything. Paul was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked. I mean, we could just keep going on and on and on. In fact, Paul, it's almost like he loses count of these things. I mean, he mentions them in the plural, right? Beatings and stonings and shipwrecks multiple times, right? I mean, if, if, if one of these things had happened in my life once, I would be so obnoxious about telling you about it, you would know exactly how many times it happened. Remember that time I was stoned, guys, to nearly to death? Paul, this happened all the time, and he kept on obeying. Why? He says this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. In the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's right. That's what Paul's doing. That's what he's getting at. He lives by faith in the Son of God. He doesn't stop there, though. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knew of Christ's love for him. He loved me and gave himself for me. And that drew out of Paul's heart love for the Lord Jesus Christ, which led to him walking into his obedience to his commands. Think about the book of Revelation. Before Jesus Christ writes these seven letters to the churches, telling them, you're going to obey, I'm calling you to persevere in obedience even to the point of death. How does he introduce himself? He introduces himself in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, as the one who loves us and has shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He knows his people need to know his love for us because that is when we grasp that reality, that is what will enable us to love him and walk in obedience. So Paul prays. He says, I want you to know the eternal hope that awaits you. I'm praying for that, that the Spirit would put that deep in your heart, that you would just get get that, that it would take root in you. I'm also praying that you would know the treasure you are to your Father. Know that He loves you, that He delights in you, that He rejoices in you, that He cherishes you. I'm praying that reality would become deep in your heart, rooted deep in your hearts. But this raises a question, doesn't it? And that question is this, even if I'm gripped by eternity, and I believe it, that is worth living radically obedient to Jesus now. And if my heart is moved in love, God loves me, I know that, I want to obey Him. Well, all of that can move me at the level of my motives. Okay, my heart wants to, I desire, but am I actually going to be able to do it? Are you and I, are we going to have the power to actually walk away from sin? I mean, doesn't Satan whisper all the time, you're never going to walk, be able to walk away from that sin? You're never going to be able to walk in holiness in the pattern of life in which you're finding yourself right now, right? He lies to us all the time. This brings us to Paul's third request. 
He prays that we might know the greatness of God's power toward us. The greatness of God's power toward us. This is the third what. We find it in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? Paul wants us to know that the answer to can we do it, can we walk in obedience to God's commands in this age and amidst all my own weaknesses and struggles, his answer is yes, because I've been praying that the Spirit would open the eyes of your heart to see the greatness of God's power toward those who believe. And then what he does, because we might be thinking, what do you mean by God's power? What's that look like? Well, in verses 20 through 23, he finishes the rest of our text this morning by outlining what God's power looked like. He does it in two ways, and I want us to see both of these. They're crucial. One, he shows us God's power by showing us the power of, of what God did in, in, in working toward Christ, how he raised Jesus from the dead, seated him in the heavenly places, put all things under his feet. Then, he shows us his power by showing the power of Christ himself. So let's, let's start at the beginning, how we see God's power, this power that is, remember in verse 19, his power toward us. This power is directed toward you and me. The end of verse 19, according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then in verse 21, he's going to tell us he reigns over everything. If, if Paul, I don't know how he would have written verse 21 to make this more clear. It's as if he thinks of every category under the sun and says Christ is over that. Seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He raised him from the dead, Christ reigns over all, verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now let's take then the first three things he did. He raised him, he seated him, and he put all things under his feet. Here's what happens. This is the first picture of God's power Paul gives us. On that Easter Sunday morning, Jesus Christ, the God-man, had really died. In His human nature, everything that we go through when we die, He went through. His lungs stopped filling with air, His heart stopped beating, His brain stopped firing neurons, whatever, all the stuff. I don't even know it. You, some of you know it better than me. That all happened. When He died, He died. And God's power was shown in that he raised Jesus back to life. On that Easter Sunday morning, Jesus' dead body, his heart started beating again. His lungs started filling with air again. His brain started firing again. His eyes opened. His eyes saw. He got up out of the tomb. He walked out. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says, I want you to know, that is toward you. That power is directed toward you, but it didn't stop there. 
when he raised Jesus from the dead, he says he seated him in the heavenly place. Like he seated him above everything. He gave him greater authority than everyone and everything he reigns over all. This is why when Jesus walked out of the tomb and he gathers his disciples with him in Matthew 28, we know the Great Commission, but think of the verse right before it. In Matthew 28, 18, he gathers his disciples and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Because God promised his reigning king, I'm going to give you all the nations as your heritage. The ends of the earth is your possession. You're going to reign over it all. So Jesus says, you know what? I have all authority. There's no authority above me. I have all authority. Everything that you see, every aspect of creation is under my reign. I reign over it all. And Paul adds, and he put all things under his feet, which is a quotation of Psalm 8. Do you remember in Psalm 8, the text we began the service with? God created Adam and Eve, and he put all things under their feet. Reign over the animals, reign over the fish, reign over the birds, reign over the creation. And they did a terrible job at it, rebelling against their maker. But now Jesus Christ, the God-man, was raised. He's been given all authority, and his God has put all things under his feet. He reigns, and one day he will come back. And the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will rule forever. And we'll see the outworkings of his perfect rule and reign. That's the first way he shows us this power. God's power toward us who believe is seen in the fact that he raised Jesus, gave him all authority, put all things under his feet. But then he mentions the fourth thing he did. Raised him, seated him, put all things under his feet. And then he mentions number four. It's at the end of verse 22 there. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And what does that mean? Let's start at the very end of verse 23. Who fills all in all. What does it mean that Jesus fills all in all? I think it means the same thing probably that God meant in Jeremiah 23, verse 24. When Jeremiah says to the people of Israel, you all are listening to the false prophets. And the false prophets are saying to you, all is well. You are sinning like crazy. And the false prophets say, don't worry about it. Just keep on sinning. You're fine. God's going to do nothing. And then God speaks through Jeremiah, and God says to the people, not so fast. You are sinning in secret. Do you really think that you can do that with me? Don't you know, God says, that I am the one who fills heaven and earth? This is not just God saying, when he says, I fill heaven and earth, this is not just God saying, I'm there what he's saying is, I'm there and I'm reigning. Every square inch of heaven and every square inch of earth, I am there exercising my lordship. Don't think you can outrun me. Don't think you can hide from me. When Paul then describes Jesus as the one who fills all in all, I think he's saying the same thing. 
all of creation, everything that exists, Jesus Christ exercises his lordship there. He reigns over every authority, every rule, every dominion, every power in this age and the age to come, every name that's been named. He reigns over it all, and there's no inch of God's, no square inch of God's creation where he doesn't reign. Reigns over all, fills it all. But notice what he's saying then in verse 22. He gave him as head over the church. He's head over all the whole universe. But he's also the head of the church. And then he describes the church as his body. And then says of the church as his body, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. How do we think about that? What does that mean? That you and I, the church, are the fullness of of the one who fills all in all. I think the easiest way to think of that is not to think of fullness there as the contents that go in a container, right? Don't think of it as the water that gets poured into the watering can and fills it. Think of it as the watering can that is filled with water. I think what he's saying is this. Just as Christ reigns over the whole universe and fills the whole universe as the one who reigns over every square inch of it? So he does that especially with regard to the church. He reigns over all, but he's also been given to the church as its head. He fills every square inch of creation, but we are also his fullness. He fills us. In other words, what Paul is saying at the end of verse 23 is all the power that Jesus Christ has has been focused on you and me. It's as if the Father is saying to His Son, I have raised you up, I've seated you above all, I've put everything under your feet, you have all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, I want you to focus on especially the church. I want to fix your attention on them. Make sure that you help them, that you care for them, that you strengthen them, that you work everything for their good. The one who reigns over all is focused on us. Brothers and sisters, I know it may be that some of you are going through one of the most difficult things you've ever gone through in your life. But do not believe the lies of the devil that say, your God is neglecting you or ignoring you or unaware of your struggles. The one who fills all in all fills us. The one who reigns over all is the head of this church. The one who is the king of the universe is saying, my eyes are especially on them. They are the ones I cherish. They're the ones I care for. They're the ones that I am making sure everything in their lives works together for their good because they are mine, my special people in the midst of a universe full of all kinds of glorious things. So Paul prays three things. He wants them to know their eternal hope. He wants them to know that they are treasured by their Father and he wants them to know the greatness of God's power toward us. The glorious power of God is being mediated 
toward us through one who loves us and gave himself for us, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want to challenge us with. Can you imagine how it would affect us, Cornerstone Community Church, if you and I begin praying for each other that way? That instead of simply saying, Lord, help Tom, he's old, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. He's, he's in great health, great health. He's going to outlive us all. And, uh, yeah, Aaron and I do not check on him periodically to make sure he's still breathing. We don't. He's, he's great. But we know how prone we are to praying that way, right? How about instead of saying, Lord, so-and-so has this need, you know, they're struggling to pay their bills. Those are, are fine things, fine things. So-and-so's sick, help them recover. What if it means saying this? What if you thought through the members of your small group? And this week you said... God, I pray that Nathan might know the eternal hope that you have for him. That it would take grip in his heart this week. That he would know how much you treasure him. That, 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 that he is your son whom you love. I pray that that might grip his heart. I pray that he might know that Jesus Christ who reigns over everything is especially focused on him. That power that he has, which is all power, is directed toward him. God fix that in his heart today. God, open the eyes of his heart to see that. Pour out your spirit on him so that he'll understand it and it will be illumined to him. Can you imagine how it would change our lives as members of a church if we prayed for each other that way? Let's do it. There's nothing that stops us, is there? Now, I know it can feel intimidating to go, I don't know, there are a few hundred of us. We'll start with your small group. Pray for your family, pray for your small group. Just go around the room. If just this week we begin that pattern of praying for members in our small group that way, oh, what would it be like if God saw fit to answer the very kind of prayer that he holds up and says, this is how I want you to pray. If you want to see your prayers answered, your best bet is to pray exactly the kind of things that God says. When you pray, pray this way. Well, let's do it. And let's see what he might do. And my guess is, we're going to find these truths being rooted in our hearts in a life-changing way. So that's what we're going to pray toward. And we're going to thank God this morning that he's done everything necessary for that to become a reality by coming to the table and thanking God for the work he's done in Jesus Christ.